Well, we have uh, an extraordinarily wonderful opportunity tonight to, uh, for many of you to be introduced to Andre and Marianne Rabe. And uh, Vicky and I had a chance to get to know them a little bit. We, we actually encountered one another, met at uh, the conference this last weekend up in Denver. And I was sitting behind them, and I just started getting this overwhelming urge because we hadn't met yet. And, uh, you know, you should, you should ask them to come down because I knew they were going to be down here in the Springs for the weekend. And I thought, if there's a possibility that they have Friday open. And they were so absolutely, you guys were just the most gracious people accepting that invitation from someone you didn't have any idea about. And, uh, anyway, I just, I don't know what, what to say. When I was sending out texts this week, one of the things I said is they're Joylanders without knowing it. And what I meant by that, and I, I really stand by that. What I meant by that is, they are pioneers in creating a culture where people can ask questions. And, of course, that means that for right now I have to turn the red light on. Otherwise, he won't get a word, you won't get a word in edgeways, I guarantee. The first point you hit, it'll be up. But we're going to have a Q&A session. Not just that question, but the idea of, of uh, breaking out of the, the, the containing structures that have been imposed on us, so that we've imposed on ourselves in Scripture, opening your heart up, not being afraid, um, being willing to take a second look at a Scripture, let let that interpretation expand a little bit. I just think you guys are going to be in for a treat, and I think you'll agree with me after it's all over that that these guys are part of our family in the Spirit, even before we got a chance to know them. But I really don't want to take a whole lot more time except just to say that these are two of the most wonderful people I've ever run into, and they're the easiest people in the world to get to know. So I, <laughs> I don't know if we have enough time to do much of anything except just listen and, uh, and grow, but bless you guys for coming. And Andre, uh, both of you, come on up. Great, thank you. Well, good evening, beautiful people. It's such a joy to be here. With you, and I'll introduce Mary Ann after I spoke. I think she's going to do a song or two. Um, such a joy for us and privilege for us to be here. And I'm excited about what our Papa and our Abba wants to share with us this evening. And um, also about opening it up for conversation afterwards. Um, so this evening... I want to talk about the one thing that makes you unique. Uh, Because, you know, much of theology and much of philosophy is involved in trying to figure out what we have in common. Uh, And they speak about your humanity in terms of what's the same, what, what connects us. Uh, but very often they're not that good in identifying what is it about you that makes you unique. And that's the, the, that's the part that I want to kind of touch on tonight. And the thing that makes you unique, let me just come out with that and then we'll go into the depths of it, is your story. Nobody has your story. (laughs) Nobody has your embodied perspective and your history and your interpretation of that story. Um, 
You know, we live in a beautiful part uh, of South Africa, and there's a lot of wine farms in the area. And each one of those wines uh, has a unique story. Now, a, a lot of our spiritual and uh, um, theological ideas have, have been influenced by Plato without us even know, knowing it. But Plato basically had the idea that what gives anything its essence is that it has a heavenly or a spiritual um, design or blueprint and that can I use this as an example yes. let's say this is the bottle of wine <laughs> and in in, uh, in Plato's idea whether it's a bottle of wine a chair, a table he had the idea that in the heavenly realm there's the ultimate perfect chair the ultimate perfect table and the ultimate perfect bottle of wine, and that what we see here is basically a shadow or a copy, a manifestation of that perfect copy in the heavenly realm. And that is the essence of that thing. So when he would describe the bottle of wine, he would say the very heart, the very essence of what makes this wine this wine is that connection to that heavenly copy. And the other stuff, the relationships that this wine is in is kind of attributes. It's not really has a, it doesn't really have an influence on the wine. Now, why is that important? Because that has influenced the way in which we understood ourselves. For a long time in my Christian walk, I kind of thought that the true Andre is something that God created in the past according to a perfect blueprint. And he put that, that Andre somewhere in me. And my job is now to discover it and to be it. Does that sound familiar? Yes. I know I might use different words, but we kind of think that there's a heavenly design of who and what you are. And there was a deposit made into you and that your life is trying to find out who I am and, and to be that person. And relationships are kind of arbitrary. They don't really change who I am. But let me give a different perspective or a different view of that bottle of wine. We have a friend who um, has a wine farm there and he's... Uh, won some wonderful awards for his wines. But every bottle that he produces has an amazing history. There was a time where he walked onto that farm, he looked at the soil, he looked at the slopes, he kind of evaluated the amount of sun every aspect of every part of his farm would receive. He decided which vineyards to plant in which areas. There's a relationship between the bacteria in the soil and the vine. There's a relationship between the vine and the rain falling, the, the, the whole, how much wind there is, how much sun there is. There's a whole ecology, a number of relationships 
that comes together to produce a certain grape. There's a relationship between the farmer and his vineyard who will decide today is the day I harvest. There's a relationship that then happens in the process by which he uh, develops that wine and matures it and eventually pours it into that bottle. And today we understand more than ever before that it is relationships that is the essence of the substance of that wine. If you had to change any of those relationships, if you had to change the soil, the wine would be different. If you had to change the amount of sunshine it gets, the wine would be different. If you had to change the farmer and the process that he used to produce that wine, it would be different. It, The wine, the reality, the substance of this wine is actually the distillation, the conclusion of many, many events and relationships that eventually produce that wine. Does that make sense? And so I wanted to give that introduction because very often we think of ourselves as some metaphysical or spiritual being that was created by God in the past, and our only contribution is to try and discover who we are. And we do not appreciate the fact that creation is still happening. (laughs) Creation is still in process. Your story is still unfolding. From a very early age, um, humans have the capacity to not not only observe the events that happens to them, but to ask the question, why? You see, the difference between you and the bottle of wine, you are also the summary, the conclusion of a number of events that came to this moment. But the crucial difference between you and that bottle of wine is the bottle of wine doesn't ask why. (laughs) Humans from a very early age, we're not just satisfied by the fact that things happen. We want to know why. We seek meaning. And so we're not just the product of the events that happen to us. We are also the interpretation of those events. Now I'll get to the Bible and the scripture soon, but just follow me through this story. If you want to hook onto a scripture, maybe John 1.14 is a good thing. The word became flesh. <laughs> you see, the ultimate purpose of God's thoughts is not an idea. The word did not become a concept. The word did not become the Bible. (laughs) The Word became flesh. And God's ultimate desire in expressing His, His thoughts is for those words to become tangible reality in our lives. 
And so from a very early age, humans um, try to make sense of their world, try to interpret what happens to them. And uh, before the age of six, we're fairly, quite, we're fairly flexible in how we interpret events because we kind of know that we know little. <laughs> and so with every new event, with, new, with every new experience, we allow the experience to teach us about the reality of our world. But very soon we become rather certain about how our world works. And we no longer allow experiences to teach us. We now teach experiences what they mean. Because we've this out. We, we understand the logic of cause and effect. And the more we anticipate our future based on past experiences, and the more our expectations are met, the more certain we become that we are right in the way we interpret our story. And this is a natural and necessary part of becoming human, is we seek a level of security and certainty in understanding our world. So there's nothing wrong with that. It's a good and necessary part. But there comes a stage where, hmm, one day, I don't think I have a chance to give that example. It's too long. I'm just going to say it. And the examples, biblical examples and things, I've got books and things if you want to study it further. But I'm just going to give you the conclusion. Is that okay? Because then we can get into discussion further, quicker. Um, when I find myself in my story, basically, subconsciously, that the way it works is we, we, we try and find the connection between our life events. What is it that, that gives meaning to this event? The way in which we give meaning to an event is we put it in the context of other events. We put it in the context of a story. The same way in which a note of music has got much more significance and beauty in the context of a melody. We, we place our life events in the context of a story. And we place our own stories in the context of a larger story. That's how we give greater meaning and significance to our life events, to our stories. Now, when we find ourselves in our story, because we discover there's, there's nothing that connects our life events more than the self that experienced them. Then what they have in common is the I that remembers them. <laughs> and so we find ourselves in our stories, and when you find yourself in your story very often, we find our security in being right about my interpretation of my story. <laughs> you remember we are not just a product of the events that happen to us. 
We are the product of the interpretation we give to those events. Because something might happen uh, to two people. They might have might be present at the same event and experience it very differently. Why? Because they interpret it differently. So each one of us, we develop this framework of interpretation. And early on, we, we want to secure that framework. We, be, we have a pursuit for certainty because certainty promises security. If you can just be right, <laughs> if you can just be certain about who you are, who God is, surely that should mean greater security. And to an extent, there's truth in that. Certainty does offer a measure of security because a prison is very secure. You know, a, a prison is secure. But is that the kind of security you want? <laughs> and very often we become trapped in the things that we are very certain of. It's the very things that I am certain about God that keeps me from experiencing God in a new way. <laughs> Can I say that again? The very things about which you are certain, or about who God is, are the things that keeps you from experiencing God in a new way. The very things that you are certain about who you are, are the things that limits you from becoming more <laughs> than what you are. You see, the, the end result of this gospel, the, the, the purpose of this gospel is not to produce people who are right, <laughs> but people who are astonished at the wonder and the beauty and the awesomeness of a God who is always more than what I've known so far. At the, at the wonder and the awesomeness of what He is in me, which is also more than what I've known up to this stage. <laughs> See, the day in which you become absolutely certain about who you are and who God is, is also the day in which you become absolutely boring. <laughs> God wants to continue to astound us, surprise us, <laughs> overwhelm us with a reality that's larger than the story we've told ourselves so far. You cannot be certain and astonished at the same time. <laughs> the very experience of astonishment is an experience that confronts me with a reality that does not fit into my framework of interpretation. That's why it astonishes me. 
it's surprising because it contradicts me. <laughs> you see, it's in this self-made realm of certainty, in this prison of security, that the gospel is the gloriously good news that you are wrong. <laughs> That you are more than the story you've been telling yourself so far. That God is more amazing than the one you've known so far. (laughs) In John 5, I think it's verse 20, Jesus speaks about his father and he says, He shows me, the father loves the son. And he shows him all things that he himself does. And, and he will show you even greater things than these so that you may be astonished. <laughs> God is not interested in creating people who are correct, in developing people who are right. His desire is to draw you into that place of wordless wonder, which is the best description for a reality that exceeds every language. You cannot be astonished and certain at the same time. Jesus, in another place where he introduces us to the God that he experiences, says, to this God, all things are possible. You cannot reduce possibility to certainty. If something is possible, it is not certain. And if something is certain, it's no longer possible. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, <laughs> in our insecurity, we crave a God of certainty. Because often we know that we're not certain, but my God, we hope God is certain. Uh, about who I am and where my life is heading, headed. And, and so we, even though we might allow a certain measure of, of uncertainty in ourselves, we could not imagine a God that is not certain. But Jesus introduces us to a God for whom all things are possible, not a God for whom all things are certain. <laughs> now, I, I'm trying to pull all these pictures together. A God that is bigger than our certainty, a God that, um, uh, uh, that is larger than the prison of our correctness and our rightness. And, and maybe I must push it a level further and say, let me introduce the concepts of faith and doubt into this as well, because 
often if we had to ask people, what is the opposite of faith? They would quite easily answer, it's doubt. But I want to show you that there is a kind of doubt that does not contradict faith, but that works with faith. That that shows us that uh, actually maybe the opposite of faith is not doubt. Maybe the opposite of faith is certainty. Hmm. Let me give you a picture. Remember, we're going to have a Q&A, so let those questions burn. We're going to get there. Um, when we look at the heroes of faith in Hebrews 12, not one of them is called out of their insecurity into greater security, out of their unfamiliar environment into a greater familiar environment. Every one of them is called out of what they are certain of into a place that is unknown out of what they are familiar with into unfamiliar terrain. Abraham, leave your family and everything you know and follow me. Where are we going, Lord? I'm not even going to tell you. You just take this step into this adventure of the God who, who continually surprises us. That is the experience of faith is often most acute in a situation of the greatest uncertainty. Go read Hebrews 12. It's in the midst of a new land, unfamiliar people, uh, contradicting experiences that faith becomes most obvious. Let's imagine again that prison that secure prison of certainty. This is where faith and doubt begins to work together. You see, when you start doubting some of the things that you believed about God and about yourself, very often people experience that as a very disturbing experience. Um, But it might just be God whispering to you, saying, hey, you've outgrown your small ideas about me. (laughs) Hey, I'm starting to make room for myself in this little prison of certainty. And, And this doubt that you experience It's actually divine doubt. It's starting to break down these prison walls so that faith can reach out to possibilities that you have not imagined before. See, when Paul is on that trip to go and with great zeal persecute these other Christians because he knew that he was right, And as he's on his way to persecute them, a light shines into his heart, knocks him to the ground. And in that moment in which he 
he's confused, in which he is astonished, in which he says, who are you, Lord? In that moment in which he doubts that the God whom he imagined justifies his violence against others, in that moment of doubt is also the birth of the greatest faith. The birth in which he sees a God that is larger and more, that's more amazing than the God he was so certain about. I want to leave, end this off with kind of one last metaphor. And I also want to say there's many things you can be certain about. I don't want to demonize certainty. It's helpful to be certain about many things. (laughs) I am about many things, I'm certain. But but I don't want to, I no longer confuse my certainty with faith. Faith is an openness to possibilities, to an unfolding story to greater meaning, and that openness to a God that's larger than my ideas and my concepts is not the same experience as certainty. Can you see that? That experience is, faith is more like that wow experience than it is that I know that I know I'm right. Can you see the difference? And there's many things you can still be right about and correct about and certain about, but that's not faith. That's just certainty. <laughs> okay. Faith is, faith is something more mysterious, more beautiful, more inviting, more seducing, more adventurous. Faith is an attitude of openness that even allows for the possibility that I might be wrong regarding some things. So the last comparison I want to make, we started with the metaphor of story, and I want to compare that metaphor of story with the metaphor of plan. Have any of you ever heard the idea that God has a plan for your life? Everyone. (laughs) We are all familiar with the plan metaphor. Now, just as with certainty, I'm going to kind of deconstruct it a bit. Is that all right? And it might make you a bit uncomfortable for a while. Don't worry, there's place for plan. Uh, And there's beautiful things about plan. And actually, these insights have made God's plan more precious and valuable for me than ever before. But any metaphor can be pushed to an extreme that it wasn't meant for. And I think the metaphor of plan is one of those metaphors that have been pushed to an extent where it's become harmful rather than useful. Um. Let me draw out the difference between plan and story. The best plans have got few surprises. Would you agree? 
the best stories have got many surprises. In fact, when you go into a movie and in the first five minutes you know who the good guy is, who the bad guys are, and you can just foresee where this is going, you think, how boring. Why did I waste my time coming to see this? The, the best movies are those that confuses you halfway through, that makes you mad another three quarters of a way through, and then only at the end does the beginning make sense. Only at the end does the whole thing come together and meaning is transformed and, and the, the complexity and the confusion of the whole story becomes so intriguing because it's so much like reality, <laughs> like your life. The best plans um, tries to limit the future so that it can control it. The best stories kind of unfolds naturally. Now, when I only relate to God with the metaphor of plan, it presents some difficulties. Because, you know, every now and then, we hit a disaster. We hit something that, that's unjust. We hit an event that we don't know how to describe in any other terms, but this is evil. And why did this happen to me? Now, when the only metaphor with which you relate to God is the metaphor of plan, that becomes problematic because we then explain it with two ways. The first way is, no, that was not God's plan. Somehow you stepped out of the plan and you stepped out of his protection and and so now... He allows these things to hopefully get you back in the plan. Have you heard those explanations? You, you're familiar with that? The other explanation is, no, this is God's plan. And we don't say it out loud, but I think we often think it. My goodness, he makes crappy plans. If if. <laughs> If this is his plan, I knew, I know many people that can make a better plan than this. This is horrible. How can this be God's plan? But those, both those responses to plan creates a sense of distance. Whether I think I stepped outside of God's plan and now he's left his protection. Can you see the distance? Or somehow, This evil, unthinkable event is part of God's plan, and I've got to somehow argue that maybe his goodness is just so good that I don't understand it. That's why evil is good. You know, it gets very confusing. Um, Both those ideas creates a distance in relationship with God. Can you see that? But this is where the metaphor of story becomes very valuable. Because every story has a chapter that ends in disaster. But it's not the end of the story. 
Every story is a place that gets a bit confusing, where it's chaotic, where it's turmoil. But it's not the end of the story. Meaning is still unfolding. This is the very message of of God becoming flesh, of God stepping right into the middle of our chaos, into the middle of our conflict, into the middle of our world, and and saying it's right here, right now, that I want to be God with and through human beings. I want to be part of this story, part of this unfolding meaning. See, the incarnation is God's declaration that I don't want to be God by myself, for myself or with myself. The only way in which I want to be God is with man, through man, as man. (laughs) Jesus did not come as the one event in human history in which God came to show you what you could never be. (laughs) Jesus comes as the revelation of God's intention for your life, that in your existence, the thoughts of God, the love of God, wants to become flesh again. That the incarnation continues. <laughs> that this story continues to unfold. You see the, the story plan metaphor. I used to have the idea and And I know many of the people that we ministered to have this idea of a God who stands behind us with a blueprint, with a plan, and he's trying to just keep us in this plan, trying to... And even if we don't relate it to our actual life events, maybe in terms of who and what you are, they still imagine God as the one who designed and decided who and what you are and enforced that design upon you. I want to give a different metaphor. You know, grammar, the rules of language, is necessary to make language understandable. If there was no grammar, no rules of language, we would not understand one another. But because we agree to conform to certain rules of how to construct sentences and meaning, we can tell stories and everyone understands it. But grammar itself does not tell any story. (laughs) Within the context of a language and within the rules of grammar, you are free to tell a story that has never been told before. Can you see that? Maybe God 
is not the one who enforces your story upon you. Maybe God is not the one who gives meaning to everything. But just like grammar, God is the possibility of meaning. God is the possibility of a story. And so instead of imagining a God who stands behind us with a plan, enforcing it upon us, making us who, who we are, or controlling our lives according to that plan, we can now imagine a God who stands in front of us. And whatever, and he extends absolute freedom to us. And whatever decision you make, right or wrong, he's right there. To open up new possibilities. And whatever next step you take, he's opening up more possibilities. And you take the next step, and he's opening up possibilities. There is a portion for, for plan, just like all of us have good intentions towards our children. You remember the scripture in Isaiah, I know the plans I have for you, towards you. And, and the Hebrews may be better, the thoughts I have towards you. Thoughts to prosper you, to give you a future. Now, with my children, and you, I know you're the same with your children. I didn't decide when my child was one year old, you're going to be a dentist. And all your children's books are about teeth. And I'm going to take you to meet all my dentist friends. And I'm going to, I don't care really what you want. This is my will for your life. Can you see that that relationship with your child is not going to be very conducive towards relationship? Because ultimately our desire for our children is not that specific. Really what we want is for them to be healthy and well-adjusted individuals that can handle the reality of a life that's going to throw them contradictions and and know how to overcome it and still remain sane and still have a sense of value. And that's ultimately the kind of groundedness that we want to give our kids. And And whether they then prosper in one career or another career, it's my greatest joy to be part of that journey and to enable it where I can. We have imagined a God whose plan is so strict and narrow that your only contribution was find the plan and stick to it. Have you had that kind of interpretation? Has anyone found the plan? <laughs> um, no, <laughs> no, this God, and let me offend you just for a moment because God offended me for a moment and then he redeemed the plan. But just for a moment, can you, can you imagine a God who does not have a plan for your life? But a God that so trusts what he invested in you. That he says, I'm just going to open up possibilities. And whatever you choose, I'm going to bless it. And I'm going to open up more possibilities. Now, won't you be a co-author of a story that has never been written before? I invite you to become 
co-creators of who you are. (laughs) What extravagant freedom. Now, within that story, there's room for plans. <laughs> I, I think it's been switched around for me. I thought whatever happens is part of a big plan. Now I'm starting to think, God, the God of possibilities has this massive story. No matter how clever you are, you're not going to know it from beginning to end. But within this amazing story, there's some beautiful plans. You know, we've, we've seen God orchestrate situations. And I know you have. That just all comes together in the most beautiful moment of provision or unfolding. When we plan to come on a trip like this, we start months before because Marianne knows like two months before the tickets, tickets are still affordable. So we've got to start months before Planning, booking, there's, there's a good thing about planning. Thank God there's room for that. But some of the most amazing things in this journey has happened in a way that we could never have planned it. Some of the may, may, this wasn't planned until a day or two ago. Yeah. We love to leave some room for chaos and for, for possibilities to unfold. Yeah. Because that's what makes life so exciting. That's what gives us opportunities for astonishment. So, I've spoken enough now. The, uh, the gist of what I hope to communicate is that faith is much more like astonishment rather than certainty. And that God is a God of adventure. A God who doesn't just want to enforce a predetermined boring plan upon your life. But the God who wants to enjoy this adventure with you. And therefore opens up possibilities. And your joy becomes his joy. Because you know there's something about joy. This is joyland. You cannot experience joy without the element of surprise. (laughs) You can go study that psychologically. Psychologically, you're not going to be very joyful if it's exactly what you expected. (laughs) Joy happens in the realm of the unexpected. Now, we can kind of imagine it for ourselves, but can we imagine it for God? Can God be surprised? (laughs) We didn't want to entertain that thought. We wanted the God who's absolutely certain, a God who knows the end from the beginning and everything in between, a God for whom nothing new ever happens. If you go look in the Oxford Dictionary, the definition of nothing new ever happens, it's the word boring. We've created the omni-boring God (laughs) for whom nothing new ever happens, who's got it all under control. The God revealed in Jesus has got no desire whatsoever to control you, to control your life. 
He has one desire, that's to set you free. To be truly and honestly yourself. To create possibilities and be surprised and joyful with you as you decide for one rather than the other. He's excited about your life. Your joy is his joy. (laughs) 